Good afternoon. It's been a couple of weeks. We were out of town, and so I'm glad to be back. Uh, you're probably thinking, as we were, as Dad read that uh, um, Bible verse, you might be thinking, well, I think we're supposed to be talking about Job tonight. And uh, we are in a roundabout way tonight. We're going to attempt to make this uh, very practical to you with a question that I think is one that all of us have asked and all of us have probably tried to come up with an answer. I don't know that we're going to come up with an answer that is 100% tonight, but hopefully we'll come up with an answer that you can reflect back on later. Now here's the thing. Normally I tell you at this point, turn to that book, and we probably won't even turn from that page. But tonight, we're going to be all over the place. So you need to turn to your Bible tonight, and we'll be good to go, alright? So any number of 66 verses that could be helpful for you this evening. Job is one of the books that's referred to as the wisdom books. And I have something that we're going to watch to start with that's kind of about the book of Job. Uh, It also mentions a couple of books that we've not looked at yet, which is uh, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. Uh, We'll get to them a little bit later, but it doesn't really get too deep into them. So we're not taking anything there uh, too much from it. This is kind of, yeah, it sounds like it's some. But anyway, we're going to uh, start with that here in just a moment. So uh, what I'll do is uh, we'll start this. I'm going to turn the lights off so hopefully it'll be a little easier for you to be able to see. And then we will go from there. This is about seven minutes long, so hopefully it's something that uh, you'll enjoy as we go through. There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes, who observes, uh, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well, is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. Alright, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who's this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running and he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks 
Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, we find out what he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, at other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is. And he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it, just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world. Things that we might see every day, but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without thinking about it. And God says they're not they're actually a part of this good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered. And yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends. Because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. 
And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why isn't it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the type of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. And that's the book of Job and the end of our wisdom series. These biblical books of wisdom are amazing. Each one offers a unique perspective on the good life, and you need to hear all of them together as you learn to live with wisdom and in the fear of the Lord. Hey, you guys, thank you. So what we're going to see as we go through the book of Job is a lot of what was talked about right there. I think we all have a rough understanding of the story in the book of Job, that things appear to us that Job has this wonderful life, that everything is perfect. And so he's, he's, he's all of that is taken away from him. And in the story, everybody seemingly begins to question Job. In fact, what is it? Do you remember what his wife says that he should do? Curse God and die. And so Job struggles with this. At no point does he blame God, but it is important, and we're going to get into chapter three here in just a few moments. But it is important to know that God, that Job asks a question that all of us have asked as well. And if we've not yet asked it, we will ask it. Why is this happening to me? Now, we always ask that question in the bad times, right? You know, nobody has ever had three straight good things happen and say, man, why is all this happening to me, right? We might say it, but we don't really want to know the answer because everything's going well. But the minute something bad happens, the first thing we want to say is, why is this happening to me? You can raise your hand if you do that because that's human nature, right? In our example, sometimes we hear Job described as being what kind of person? It starts with a P. Patient. Our example, Job, asks the same kind of questions. He's wanting to know the same thing as well. And so the question is, why does God allow suffering, sorrow, heartache, death, even among his own children. So I want us to think about that tonight. Why does God allow those things? All of us can relate to suffering, sorrow, heartache, and death. Every one of us has known people that fall into those categories, maybe all of those categories, and maybe even ourselves, because we're human. If we live long enough, that kind of stuff Happens. So turn to Job chapter 3. We're not going to go through this too much, but it's the 18th book out of 39 uh, in the Old Testament. Thought to have been written around the time of Abraham. It may well have been uh, the earliest book that was actually written. Uh, written down, you can see there. Maybe the only Bible book written before Genesis. That's all sort of speculative. It doesn't necessarily matter on that but we'll get to it here in just a second but i want you to look at job chapter 3 starting in verse 11 and this is after these bad things have happened to job 
So start with me here in verse 11. We're going to go down to verse 19. This is Job talking. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me or or why the breasts that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw a light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. Or at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Job is asking a question that has maybe been reworded that all of us can relate to. Why was I even born? Right? Sometimes when things continue to go bad, and a lot of times it seems to us that bad things sort of happen, you know, one day, if if it's not one thing, it's another. We've said something sort of like that before. But we tend to notice those bad things more than we notice those good things that were there. But Job's asking a question that's relevant to us today. This is a question that is relevant to every person who's ever lived or whoever will live. In fact, this is not a Jewish thing or just a Christian thing. In fact, Buddhism, one of the largest religions in the world, speaks of four noble truths. And the first noble truth in Buddhism, life has inevitable suffering. So it doesn't matter. So, well, if I, maybe, if, you know, maybe other religions don't deal with this. But no, everybody deals with these same kinds of things. Now, <clears throat> what our goal tonight is, is not necessarily to find the origin or the cause of suffering. I don't think I can answer that question. You can't answer that question. The Bible can't really answer that question. But what we're hoping to do is to understand why God allows it, okay? And why that even though bad things happen, Christians can rejoice in the life that we have. Now, this is exactly what the video talked about. And I'm going to go through real quick just the story. Job's story could have been written at any time. This could be called Job, but it could be called fill in your name and it would work just the same. It's a story of battle for men's minds. It's a story of faithfulness and dependence on God in the face of adversity. Job's a rich man. He fears God. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan comes with them. And God tells Satan there's no one more faithful on earth than Job, which would be a really nice title to wear, right? And that's God saying that. That's not me saying that because I could say that about Jimmy, but somebody else might think completely different, right? Jimmy might know that it's not true, even though I'm saying it about him. But if God's saying it, that's a pretty stout statement. And so Satan says, well, prove this and do so without protecting Job. Let's see if he's really there. The video talks about how it says, but maybe Job is just doing good because he knows there's a reward. You know, it's kind of like if you tell your kids, you're, if you eat all of your food, you'll get ice cream at the end. We did that with Will the other night. And he was eating a couple of things that he didn't necessarily want. And as soon as he got finished, he laid his, he laid his uh, fork down. He said, when do I get the ice cream? Well, he was not necessarily eating the food because he liked it, but he was eating it 
because he wanted the prize as a result. So Satan takes everything from Job. And I think the story shows literally everything taken away. Job's afflicted with sores. Job's wife tells him to curse God and to die. But at no point does Job blame God. Now, I think there's an important point that we need to look at there. At no point does he blame God. Does he ask questions of God? Absolutely. Does he seem upset or frustrated that all of this is happening? Yes. So let's don't confuse the word blame with saying, well, all of my everybody has died and everything. And you know, all's good. Doesn't, that's, that's not what this story is about. But he's placing the blame in the right spot. Three of Job's friends come to visit and they argue with him. Uh, telling that you know you've done this or you've done that, all of these different things. Uh, but as we see here, Job, throughout all of this, is seeking wisdom, and that's an important thing for all of us because we talk about wisdom in the Bible, and we always refer to Solomon. But wisdom is something that yeah, we can be born with, but we can seek that kind of thing out as well. And throughout all of this, instead of blaming God, because the first thing we all like to do is blame, he's trying to figure out, why is this happening? How many of us blame first and ask questions second? This is Raymond's fault. I don't know why, but it's Raymond's fault, right? We jump on that real quick instead of saying, well, why did this happen? What happened? Is there a reason for it? Now, God ultimately intervenes, and finally, uh, Job's life, Job ends up being uh, rewarded uh, even more than it was. And as the video said, that almost seemed a little bit odd as well. But the whole thing that I want us to think about as we go into this is what we said a minute ago. How can we rejoice in trials and suffering? All right, I've got seven things that we're going to look at here this evening. First, why does God allow suffering? Well, the first one here, suffering keeps this world from being too attractive. I want to say right off the bat, this is a track that I read a while back, and I thought it would work for this lesson. But it keeps this world from perhaps being a little too attractive. Lucille, what does the word attractive mean when you hear it? Something pretty and looks good. And we could probably think back to who was the most attractive person in your senior class, right? Whoever that was, boy, girl, I don't know who it was. That may not be the same today, right? Do you remember who the cutest girl or the cutest guy in school was? Have you seen them lately? <laughs> Maybe. Now, on the flip side, there was somebody in that class that said he's the cutest guy in the room. And there's another person that said, no, he is not. See, attractiveness depends on the person, right? See, I think there are things that I find attractive that you might not. And I'm talking physically there, but there are foods that I find attractive that you may not. There are TV shows that I find attractive that you may not. There are things that attract us in different ways. If we're not careful, a lot of things in the world build up those attractions. Now, there's two verses here. These are on the screen. It might be easier for a couple of them if you go into your uh, Bible just because I couldn't make them as big as I would like to. But Melvina, do you care to read the first one up there, which is 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12? Love, I beg you, so generous, and go 
having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they have served, glorify God in the day of visitation. All right. So when we read this verse here, we can kind of see that we are described as sojourners and as pilgrims. What does that mean? Passing through. So if we're not careful, we kind of bog ourselves down with all of these things that either they're going to disappear or we're going to disappear. Let me ask a question real quick. How many of you bought a VCR? I'm not. Not every hand up here. A lot of hands up here have VCR. How many of you still got yours? Why not? You can watch all kinds of stuff on it, right? I don't know what you paid for a VCR, but in 2021, you paid far too much, right? Because there's a whole, there's a world full of landfills that got VCRs stacked up in them. You know why? Those things were super attractive at one point, but things have moved on. See, if we get ourselves caught, if we're not careful, we get caught up in things that seem like something really neat, but the world changes. It moves on. We move on. We, I saw a, a, a picture. I should have put it up here. As a, a friend of mine tweeted it out yesterday. And it's a guy running. And there's a bunch of dollar bills just floating in there. And he's running. And then he gets the second frame. He's closer to him. And the third frame, he catches him. But he realizes he's off the cliff. And he's falling straight down to his bed. It's kind of like life, right? Sometimes we look at money in that way. I'm going to do everything I can to chase that. But then when you catch it, it's already gone. We're just passing through. We don't need to focus too much on trying to accumulate or get those things that are super attractive. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. Uh, Mom, do you care to read that one? As a Christian, we have hope that there's something better prepared for us, right? Now, is there, are there nice things to have in the world? Are there things that make the world more comfortable for us? Absolutely. Absolutely. But there's also suffering in the world. And so there's, you take the good with the bad in that. And if there was no suffering in the world, think about that for just a second. If there's no suffering in the world... Would you want to leave? So, what good is heaven if there's no suffering in the world? As long as things are good here, I don't have any desire to go there. So maybe suffering keeps the world from becoming a little too attractive for us. Number two, suffering, this may seem odd, can bring out our 
best. Does that make sense? One of the most famous basketball games in history was in the late 90s. The Bulls were playing the Utah Jazz in the NBA Finals. And Michael Jordan, it's called the flu game, but I think it was actually food poisoning that was his problem. But he basically, he really couldn't stand up. But he drinks his, he gets the IVs and all that kind of stuff. And you can see throughout the game, like every time there's a timeout, he's just, he's, we've all got food poisoning. You've been sick in your stomach, right? You've got that food poisoning that just puts you in the bed for a couple of days. You just are done for, right? There's no way you could play 48 minutes of basketball up and down. He scored over 30 points. They win the game in the championship. It's widely regarded as one of the best performances in NBA history. Not necessarily because he played great, which he did, but he played through a great bit of suffering. Sometimes suffering can bring out the best in us. Now, I'm going to be the first to admit, this is not talking about me. Because the minute something bad happens, I like to whine about it, first of all. (laughs) I'd like to see it get fixed, second of all. And if I'm not getting the whining attention that I want... Or if it ain't fixed the way I want it, I'd rather just go to bed and we'll get up and try it again tomorrow. Suffering can bring out the worst. No, no it's, it's his best, not worse. But how can suffering actually bring out the best in us? Uh, it, it can, I think it can show us how strong we are. Yes. known anybody who was suffering from a serious illness, maybe cancer, and they beat cancer. We've probably all known people that are in that situation. And they'll say something along these lines. Well, you know, I knew people were praying for me. People came and visited me. They hugged me, told me they loved me. They asked, they, they, they had me on the, uh, the bulletin in church. You know, maybe they brought me food or brought my family food. They did some jobs or chores for our home. Sometimes people say those are the kind of things that help them beat it. Because they'll say something like this. I wasn't doing it by myself. You know, suffering can bring out the best in us because we know that we have other people that are with us as well. Romans 5, verse 3 and 4. Dad, you want to read that one? But we also glory in tribulations. What are tribulations? Always linked with trials. Troubles. That seems odd that one would glory in trouble, right? Now I think all of us are, if we were being honest, we would like to avoid all the troubles that we could avoid, right? You're human. And it's a whole lot better when you don't have troubles than when you do have troubles. But it says that they gloried in tribulation, comma, Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance means what? Perseverance is that I'm, I'm going to work through this. I can power through this. I can keep on. And perseverance produces character. My character is made stronger because of the things that I went through as a result. And character produces what? Hope. And what is hope 
for us as Christians? Heaven. So it looks to me like to build that hope, i got to go through some troubles to get there. Makes sense, right? Because if nothing's going wrong, all my hope is here. Number three. Suffering can silence the enemies of God. I'll let you dwell on that for just a second. So in that story of Job, Satan wanted to prove that God was wrong about Job. God said Job was what? There you go. Ella? Absolutely. He was the most faithful and he would stay faithful no matter what happened. He said that he's, and Satan said, nah, he said, Job only serves you because of the good things that have happened. You know, if Job sees some troubles, he'll tuck tail and run. He'll go the other direction is what we see. But we see there that Job's patience and perseverance under suffering proved who wrong? Satan. Who's the biggest enemy of God? So when we think suffering can silence the enemies of God, we're looking to silence Satan in that, right? But we can silence in other ways as well. Let's look first at 1 Peter 2.15. Jimmy, can you read that one? For this is the will of God that by doing good you may put the of All right, so there's going to be enemies of God who are going to speak ill or speak negatively of God. And so we read, that, read there in 1 Peter 2, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, we would do what? <clears throat> Put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So when I'm suffering, the first and obvious thing that I might want to do is, why, God, is this happening to me? Well, Job's an Old Testament story. and Things changed in the New Testament. Well, this is Peter right here saying what? Doing good can put to silence. So if they see you struggling, but you're still trying to do good as a result, that can make people perhaps question themselves, right? They can look at this and say, oh, this man, his, his faith is really strong. She seems, she, she's willing to, she's going to go through even troubles. She's going to do more. Yes. Yeah. So let's look then at First Corinthians one eighteen. Now, uh, Leland, do you care to read that one? So we can link that verse sort of with what Dad said right there. That, that what these preachers that we read about in Acts had been going through, we see Paul mention the same thing in 1 Corinthians. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Doesn't matter to those who are just living, living the life here on earth. But if there's something more, if there's something better for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Now, 
Our thoughts here, I guess we would say, is by patiently, Job, right? By patiently enduring, and that's a word that we have to keep in mind. Enduring or doing good in times of suffering, the value of being a Christian will shine through. When I say the word enduring, what comes to mind? Endurance or enduring. You're able to cope with whatever's happening. You're pushing through whatever happens. This week, maybe the last couple of weeks, but every morning, early in the morning, there is bicycle racing on NBC. It's the Tour de France, which is the most famous bicycle race there is. 21 days of riding a bicycle. Most of those days riding over 100 miles on a bicycle. And about a third of those days, most of it riding straight up here. There is no way in the world that you can convince me that the people doing that aren't just crazy. Who would do that? I wouldn't want to ride a bicycle from here to the, you know, to the grocery store, much less ride one up a mountain for 100 miles and then do it again tomorrow. That's all about endurance, right? Because what happens in that bicycle race is a whole lot like Christianity. The starting number is a lot different than the finishing number. What do you think happens in the Tour de France as it goes along? They drop out. Sometimes they drop out because bad things happen. But sometimes they drop out because they just can't do anymore. I understand that. But the winner has a really nice trophy that he can put on his wall, right? What do you think think means the most to the winner of that race? The sales satisfaction. Sales satisfaction. I did it. He quit, he quit, but I I did. And I was the best in the world. world. But what do you think what do you think goes through the mind of the person that finishes twenty fifth in that race? I finished. I did it. I endured. I could have quit. In twenty fifth, his name's not in the newspaper. I mean it's listed down the side, but nobody reads that name. He doesn't get any TV commercials out of it, but it went through. Is there something for us as Christians? Going through that kind of suffering as well? Number four. Suffering can make us appreciative. Do you agree with this statement right off the bat? What does it mean to appreciate something? What does it mean to be appreciative? Be thankful for. Some of the things that we appreciate the most are probably things that we had to work for the most. You've been given something that you didn't really appreciate. Be honest. There's been I've been given things that I didn't want to get, right? I'd rather not even have this. But we receive so many things in life that we pay money to rent storage buildings. Think about that for a second. We pay people money to hold our stuff. Now, I don't mean to poke anybody. But if that stuff is worth $100 a month so you don't have to see it. <laughs> is it worth having? I don't know. It's a little tough, right? That's, that's a tough question. But we appreciate those. And the things that we appreciate, we tend to keep them close to us, Right? Are there things in your house that you like to see every single day? 
And I don't mean people. I guess you can mean people. But I mean like things. Are there pictures that we look at every day? All of us do. We all have those things that are appreciative to us. And when we get all these things, we sort of start to take for granted those kind of deals. We, we, don't, we don't really put the gratitude out. Boy, I'm glad I have that. I'm going to put it in a box that's stacked four deep in the back of... We don't really think... We're not really taking those things for granted, right? Yes. When you're backpacking and you're the top of a steep, steep, steep hill and you get to see the view and you're so thankful you're there uh, because you're so thankful you've got that deal flying. Yes. You're so appreciative, you know, and it's so rewarding. Yes. I think more than anything, we can appreciate good health, good friends, a good family, and our church. But even in times of trouble, and the Bible speaks about this, we can be appreciative. This is Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Boo, do you want to read this? If, I don't, if it doesn't show up real well, you might do it on me. The context of this is this is being written by Paul. This is a letter to the Philippians. But Paul is writing this. Does anybody know where Paul is while he's writing this? He's in jail. Now let's look back at those verses again and think about saying this in jail. All right? Think about saying this in jail. What's funny is the times that we see Paul in jail is the times that he seems almost happiest. And he's using that time to preach. In the story of Phil, in the book of Philippians, we talk about his running with the jailer, right? In the story, how's the story of the Philippian jailer go? Do you remember? Paul was in the stocks. Yeah. He had a prison. Instead of running out, they say, and let's just use the word. Still suffered through, right? Nobody wants those things around your feet or around your hands or you know behind bars or whatever you want. But he, when the jailer comes down, Paul starts doing what to him? Starts preaching to him. When Paul appears before Agrippa, he says, "Do you remember?" I don't give this away. I think this one I'm preach about on Sunday. But when Paul has to appear before Agrippa, he says that I wish that all of you. Well, the same as I am, except for the chains, right? There, he is on, he wasn't really on trial, but he's kind of on trial. That's a hearing, I guess would be the best way to say it. But he's locked up, and he's saying, my condition is better than yours. This is the king. My condition is better than yours. Suffering can make us appreciative. Number six, suffering helps us mature. Any, any truth to this? When do we mature? Everybody matures differently. Let me ask another way. When do we stop maturing? We should never stop, right? And some of us, it takes us a little longer to get there. 
that I'm more mature today than I was when I was 18. Anybody that knows me when I was 18 would probably say I am. But I also hope when I'm 60 that I'm mature, more mature than I am now. And I hope if I live to be 100 that I'm more mature that day than any other day. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. How does maturity help us in suffering? Lucille, do you care to read that one? I highly doubt that any of us see in this set of verses for the first time. But the first thing there, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How many of us, be honest, struggle with that sentence right there? We all do, right? When something's bad, I should be happy. Paul was in jail. He said they were singing songs, right? I didn't sing right. Paul counted it all joy right there. Knowing that testing of your faith produces what? If I were to ask you who's the least patient person do you know, can you come up with an answer? Me. <laughs> Maybe I should say who is the second least patient person that you know. Alright, so we've got some votes here and we've got some votes over here for Lucy. Alright? Jimmy. Okay. I wasn't expecting this many people to yell out names, but that's all right. <laughs> Testing of your faith produces patience. How many of us have ever prayed for patience? Never? Never done that? No, we should, right? Because just like I might would say, well, I hope that I can grow in maturity. I hope I can grow in patience. And there are times for extended periods of times that I feel like I'm doing great with patience. And then I also remember that I teach school, that I'm married, and that I have a 10-year-old. And my patience twirls right back down the bottom, right? You know why? That's life. I chose all three of those things. Think about that for a minute. For 17 years, I chose to go stand in front of school kids and teach. Why? Sorry, question. That was not that. Patience has to be developed. The Bible talks about that, so it's not new to us. But it says, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Well, if I can develop that patience, then I'm lacking less, perhaps right there. And if we, act, if we lack wisdom, what should we do? We should ask God, who does what? Liberally without reproach. So God, in a sense, when I think about patience, God is sitting there waiting to give. We just have to ask. Well, sometimes maturity allows us to know when we should ask for something. I can remember, tell it even with Mary's hair or not, people that I really thought were attractive when I was in high school. I was afraid to ask them if they wanted to do something on Friday night. 
I think I've matured. So when I say attractive people now, I just ask them if they want to go out Friday night. I just do that all, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I do say that I'm more comfortable approaching someone with a question today than I was back then. Maturity. We grow through these kinds of things. Because I look back and I think she might have been thinking the same thing about me. She might not have been. Who knows? There are people that I went to school with that in many ways I was almost intimidated to talk to them. We had a 20-year reunion a couple of years and a half ago, and I talked to people that I don't even remember talking to in school because I was almost afraid to talk to them. How stupid is that? It's not stupid, it's being young. It's being immature. Grow in our maturity. There may be questions in the church when we first start that we're nervous about asking. Ask them anyway. How do you grow without asking? How do you grow without seeking and trying to find things out? How does our maturity and wisdom improve if we don't ask in the process? Last one. Maybe not last one. Should be the last one. Suffering could make us sympathetic. What's the word sympathetic mean? If I have sympathy for someone, what, what, am I, what do I have? I feel sorry for them. Yeah, I, sometimes feeling sorry may not be the best word, but that's, I, I understand what we're going with. What else are saying? You're concerned about the situation. Yeah, I'm concerned about the situation that those people maybe have found themselves in. I do. I think you're right. Sure. Absolutely. Let's look at these two verses here. We're almost done, but these two verses. Uh, Linda, do you care to read 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 on the left side? That we may be able to comfort those who are in, quote here, any trouble. What is any trouble? It could be anything. I don't know what you need comforted for. And the thing that you need comforted for may to me seem like something silly. But I should comfort you. If you're going through something that's difficult but I can't understand it, it's not my job to understand it. It's my job to be a comforter to you. Yes. We don't go to funeral because we are dying to go to funeral and no. see a, a dead body. We're, we want to comfort those that are afflicted. Absolutely. It says God comforts us in all our tribulation. That's a lesson for us on how we can do it as well. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Romans twelve fifteen, pretty simple verse here. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. I don't know what you're going through. And you don't know what I'm going through. But I want to go through it with you. Last one. Suffering can teach us how to pray. I know we went a little long and I apologize, but we're going to get finished. First Thessalonians, we read that we are to pray without ceasing. And you know, when we're suffering, sometimes that's when we feel like we've got to crank the praying up a little bit more, right? 
So in the midst of suffering, we, we, we start praying a little more earnestly, maybe with a little more perseverance. Uh, Roman says with groanings that cannot be uttered uh, is the term that there. The Bible talks about a model prayer, but that's not what we're talking about right here. When we struggle, when we're suffering, when we're going through difficult times, we can always pray. And that may not fix anything. But it's not necessarily about fixing everything. Because we said at the beginning, if everything could be fixed, then everything would be perfect. And if everything's perfect, there's no desire for heaven. But praying allows us to get a little closer to God and a little closer to heaven. And maybe that's a little bit better than what we've got right here. So why does God allow suffering? I don't know that these are the best answers that we'll ever come across, but hopefully they help a little bit. And hopefully you've seen some verses here, Old and New Testament, that tell you how other people have went through the same kinds of things in the past as well. So the story of Job, we didn't really spend a lot of time in Job, but we danced around the edges of the same problems that Job faced and us facing them here as well. Any questions? All right. Thank you.